Advent, it begins. November 29th, Promises, Promises, looking at a little book in the Old Testament, Micah, in chapter 5. Only five verses today, but they're chock full of truth, and we're going to be looking at that today. Now, as I was seven years, do you remember back when you were seven years old? I, I can remember that pretty clearly. If you are seven years, years old right now, just think back to last week. But when I was seven years old, I remember getting something very similar to this, and it was battery operated. It took a couple of those big C batteries, big clunky, heavy things, and the lights would light up. Uh, the blades would actually turn. It would start up and then turn to the left and make a circle and come back down again. And the steps would even come down and then go back up again. I loved that helicopter. It was so cool. I got that for Christmas when I was seven. And then the day after Christmas, one of my friends from down the street in my neighborhood came over to play with me. And he broke my helicopter. It was the day after Christmas, my favorite present that year, and he broke it. It would not function after he played too harshly with it. So I want you to imagine right now, take yourself back to when you're seven years old. If you got a broken toy, how would you deal with that? Well, I remember how I dealt with it. I held it up to my dad and I was saying, dad, fix it. Or if my mom was there, mom, fix it. That's probably what we would do. Now, what would happen if you did that? You had a toy and it got broken day after Christmas and you're saying, mom, fix it, fix it, fix it. And she says to you, you know, I can promise you that in a few months, we'll be able to buy one to replace this toy. However, you should know that you have a great uncle. We didn't know about this until just arrived in the mail this morning. We had a great uncle. He was very rich. And the bad news is he passed away. But the good news is, if there is any good news to that, he left a whole lot of money for us in his will, like $25 million. Now, we won't be able to get access to that money for a few months, but I promise you, when we get to the end of that month and we get to the, the bank, we'll be able to buy you a new toy to replace this one. Now, what are you going to do if you're seven years old? You're going to look blankly at your mother while she's talking, and all you're going to hear is, wah, 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 wah. and then you're going to say, fix it. We don't have the capacity at age seven to understand our condition if your mother explains all that to you. Now, here's the, the segue into Micah. We, even as adults, many of us, even some of us who have been Christians for a number of years, we simply don't have the capacity to fully understand our condition and the riches that we have coming to us in Christ Jesus. We just don't. And there are so many things in life that we feel need fixing, and we hold it up in prayer to God and say, fix it, fix it. And he's saying, yeah, some of this is going to happen soon. Some of it's going to happen later, but you don't yet fully understand all that you have in Christ. We're going to look today at some of these promises, because one of the things that's great about what we learn in the Old Testament, pointing ahead to the New Testament, is that God always keeps his promises. Sometimes he even keeps them in multiple ways, and we see that all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. There are layers. There's some near-future promises that are being made, some prophecies, as we'll see today in Micah 5. There are farther future promises, including some that are considered messianic promises. It's pointing ahead in time, in this case, about 700 years ahead, 
toward the time when Christ will come on the scene, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. And then there are other things that might be looking ahead to a farther future. We might call those eschatological promises, future events that would culminate everything that God has planned for us. And that those who are in Christ, those who have been born again, who have trusted him as savior, to use whatever terminology we use to show that we are a true blue Jesus follower, we have that to look forward to for eternity. So we see that near future, far future, more distant future promises happening all throughout the Old Testament. And we see it even today in this little five verse section of Micah. Micah, just to put this in context for you, was a contemporary of Isaiah, among a couple of other notable prophets. That means that they lived approximately 700 years before Christ came on the scene. Micah's task, God-given task, was to deliver a very difficult message. Most of the prophets had difficult messages. To both kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel had been split into two, and so there was Israel to the north and Judah to the south. He actually concentrated on both of those kingdoms, and he was supposed to deliver a tough message of destruction, but he followed that with a message of hope, and that's something else we see all through the prophets. There's this little blending of messages of, if you continue down this road, it's not going to end well for you. You need to turn, but God's going to discipline you if you keep down this way, or this specific thing will happen, and then there's always that thread of hope. And sometimes they come out of nowhere. It seems like they just shock you because in the middle of all this death and destruction and doom and gloom, there'll be this ray of hope. Well, God does this intentionally because he's trying to show us that he has always kept his promises and he's going to continue to keep his promises to make great the nations of Israel, to bless everybody through the seed of Abraham, all those promises that he gave us in the Old Testament. Micah 5, 1 through 5 we see that there's this destruction message plus the restoration message. It's sort of that bad news, good news, which echoes all the way back into history, and it points forward in time to sort of the bad news, good news of the gospel. Bad news is we're all sinners. We're destined for eternity apart from God in hell. Good news, God made a way to get back to him, and that restoration is made possible because of the reconciliation we can have through Christ who took our sins upon himself on the cross. That's the bad news, good news. We can see that all the way out through the arc of the Bible itself. Bad news, destruction, in this case, of Israel. Good news, God's going to restore Israel. That is one of the near future promises that we see in this passage from Micah. A farther future promise, seven centuries prior to another hope-filled event, Micah's promise is also tied to this event, which we really celebrate at Christmas, and we see that in the story of Luke chapter 2. And part of that story is when the angels appear to those shepherds waiting out in their fields, watching their flocks by night, and they say, I bring you good news that will cause great joy, and this is the shocking part, for all the people. And we might think, wait a minute, that was supposed to be good news for all the people? Are you sure about that? Well, let me read just this first five verses of Micah 5, and then we're going to dive into this a little bit. That was the preface. Here we go. Mobilize. Marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. Bad news. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, 
yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past. Some translations say of ancient of days will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed or securely in some translations, for he will be highly honored around the world and he will be the source of peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and break through our defenses, we will appoint seven rulers to watch over us, eight princes to lead us. That's that near future promise that shows up in the latter part of verse five. So that's the context of just this first five verses in Micah. And we can see already that we're starting to have a few foreshadowings way back then of something that happens in Luke chapter two. So this angel announcement, Let's look at that for just a moment, because I'm thinking about somebody out there who might listen to those words. They're thinking to themselves, yeah, I'm not really buying it. I think that if the Bible is a man-made document, and if people were just trying to come up with some sort of paraphernalia, some sort of propaganda, a recruitment tool to get more people to join this movement called the church, then they could make it say whatever they wanted to say. And I don't think this is really good news. It just sounds like a storybook story to me. Well, we need to be thinking about that. Park that off to the margin for just a moment and let's look at some of Micah's words and see why it is good news to those upon whom God's favor rests and how it can be good news for everybody. I think we're also gonna see a couple of things, some of which just blow my mind because we can see how God is placing certain little threads of truth there that I, once I start to see it, it breaks down all those barriers and causes me to think, yeah, that's not a coincidence. Something's going on here that's far bigger than I can wrap my mind around. I have to start leaning into this announcement, just like so many other people did. So let's look at this messianic promise in Micah's words, just in the first five verses. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. So what's up with this Ephrathah thing? Well, it's synonymous very often with the word Bethlehem, and that could be the case. It may be that they were just two different words, different languages. We know that certain people were called by different people depending on which language they spoke as their primary language. Some might call Simon Peter Simon or Peter. Some might call him Cephas. It just depends on which language you were speaking at the time, but it's doubtful that Micah would have written Bethlehem Ephrathah meaning both of those things going on at the same time. It's also a region that gives us a clue. For example, it would be like a county, one of the, uh, well, it is the largest county in the state of Pennsylvania is Philadelphia County. And within that county is the city of Philadelphia. So it's a massive 1.5 million people in that county because of this huge city that's in the middle of all that. Well, that's in contrast to Bethlehem, which was a tiny village, but it was also in this region, Ephrathah. But wait, there's another connection. And this is where one of those things that blows my mind comes into play as we start looking at cross-references and we see, ah, I think Micah was doing something without perhaps even knowing he was doing it ahead of time. This is something interesting for me to note too, that many of those prophets were given 
their prophecies by God and were instructed, write these words. And sometimes they would get to the end of a paragraph and he would say, thus saith the Lord, which means it was God speaking, but through his inspired prophet. Some of the prophets didn't even know what they meant at the time. <laughs> so they'd be scratching their heads. And I wondered if some of the prophets might have even asked, I think Daniel does this at one point when he says, uh, are you sure about this? Because <laughs> they don't even know what it means. And some of it may have sounded odd to them. And God says, yeah, it's going to be made known someday. You'll, you'll understand one day. Some of those may not have even understood then until they actually got to heaven. But there's another connection here, and this is what I find fascinating. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 12, different Old Testament book. Now, David, ah, something we've been studying about in our growth encounter at 930. I invite you to that, some great teaching there. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite. Where would you be from if you were an Ephrathite? Oh, Ephrathah, good for you. Five extra living water points. This Ephrathite was named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. You see that all of it's tying together. And we start to see something that's connecting the line, the lineage of David, King David, because there was one who was going to come and sit on David's throne, who would be this king of Israel, whose kingdom would last forever. Just another myriad of details that caused me to have to put a little time out on my thinking and even on my critical thinking for a moment and say, oh, that's pretty incredible. That's really amazing. I, I really have to lean into this and listen more closely because I don't think they made this stuff up. I really think there's some truth going on here and I need to pay attention. Well, there's some more meaning about why he would say he was coming from Bethlehem. That promised Messiah will be from humble origin. Steve talked just this morning in the study about King David, about how Jesse forgot to even bring his son in from the field after they were looking for the next king. Samuel was going to be anointing the next king of Israel. And he looks at all seven of these other brothers. Says, is there no other son here? Oh, yeah, there's that one out in the field, but you know, he's, he's nothing. <laughs> he's the runt of the litter. And so it shows us that he's going to be from humble origins. And I think there was a foreshadowing in the way that God used a shepherd boy literally to become the king. And we see that Jesus later on calls himself the good shepherd. There's a little tie in there as well. Doesn't mean just because he was a shepherd, though, doesn't mean he's not qualified. We also see in Micah that he's coming forth from old, from ancient days, from ancient of days. The ancient of days is referenced both in Isaiah and Daniel. And what that shows is that this guy is so much more knowledgeable than any local shepherd would have been back then. He came from all the way back in time. In fact, we know that Jesus was at the time of creation. So of course, he's going to know more than any other human being. So he's definitely going to be qualified to do this job that God has for him. There are three promises in the remainder of this short passage here. And let's look at all these three. Jesus will be our shepherd. We will live securely. And Jesus will be our peace as well. First of all, Jesus will be our shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Well, he leads, feeds, and protects. Uh, the first time that our family was in Scotland back in the year 2000, we climbed up the Kurang, some cliff faces up on the Isle of Skye, and we saw some sheep in some precarious places on a cliff face that would drop down several hundred feet, and it was very, very steep. And we asked somebody there on that trip, do sheep ever fall from those cliffs? And he said, Sometimes they do. 
said, well, how does that happen? They said, well, unfortunately, sometimes they will see some grass that they think is going to be sweeter. Instead of being greener on the other side, it's sweeter on the other side of this bush or that rock. And they'll leap down maybe eight feet to another little shelf on the cliff and nibble their way around that grass. And then all of a sudden they realize, uh-oh, <laughs> I've gotten myself in trouble. I can't hop back up that high. And there's no other way for me to get down from here without going several hundred feet. What do I do? So they start bleeding. <laughs> That's what the shepherd said. And uh, the shepherd who is really good will wait and wait and wait. Why wait, you ask? Why doesn't he just start climbing down there or get a rope and have somebody help him down to that? Because the sheep sometimes are so skittish, and I hate to say it, but sometimes so foolish and stubborn that if the shepherd starts coming toward them, they would run away from the very person who's trying to save them, and they would fall to their death. And so that shepherd will actually wait until the sheep has gotten hungry enough, nibbled all the grass around it, and weak enough that it can barely move, kind of hit bottom, so to speak. Well, not all the way bottom, but you know what I mean. And then they will finally get down there, be able to tie some ropes around it, and haul it to safety. Isn't that interesting how the very person who wants to save us becomes the person we run away from? Hmm. Sounds like human nature to me. It's good news for wandering sheep, though. The promised leader, I will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. This is him speaking. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Isn't that amazing? How Micah can write these words 700 years. This great leader who's promised will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name. Strength of the Lord and majesty. We see that both in the the persons of Moses, the great deliverer of the children of Israel, who, by the way, after he had sinned and actually killed a man, thinking he was doing a good thing by protecting one of his fellow Hebrews, killed an Egyptian, was sent out, and he was basically wandering around and became a good shepherd. Isn't it funny how some of the best leaders had to go and become a shepherd first? Well, I don't think it's funny. I think it's definitely God's plan. David, as well, as we listened to just this morning, also was a shepherd. We're going to be looking at Psalm 23, I understand, coming up soon in that study. Both shepherds, what do you learn about shepherding? Well, you learn a lot about how to care for sheep, sometimes the stubborn ones, too. <laughs> and you learn how to become a great leader. So Jesus became both things, a deliverer and a king, majestic in his power, but mighty in love, all at the same time. Verse 4 in Micah 5, we will live securely, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Now, we haven't had any reason at all for fear this past eight or nine months, have we? He says with his tongue placed securely in his cheek. Wow, if any of us hasn't felt insecure, we have either been asleep or in a coma. I mean, I think this is one of the most insecure times I've felt as a human and as a pastor and as a leader. Very few of us realized what it was going to mean to live through this last eight months. But we have this wonderful promise all the way back 700 years before Christ that we, if we are following the Good Shepherd, 
and live securely. What does it mean to live securely? Well, it means that we don't have to cave into our fears. Let me read a few of these fears for you. We have a small group that's been studying personality because uh, that's part of our shape. Spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, experiences. So we're looking at the personality so that we can understand how God gifts each of us differently and shapes each of us differently, even in our personalities. And all of us have different kinds of fears, different motivations. But as we can learn what those motivations are, perhaps some of them caused by childhood trauma or some injury there, maybe some emotional uh, injury of some sort. It helps shape who we are and how we look at the world. But we all have fears. Fear can paralyze us. It can paralyze our decision-making process. It can hold us back from taking necessary risks that we really have to take in order to move forward in our lives. Each of us deals differently, but we all have them. Some fear being controlled by others, and they can become excessively challenging in order to protect their autonomy. And they don't understand that sometimes they alienate themselves from others because of that excessive control that they're trying to put out. Some fear being corrupt or imperfect, that they'll never measure up. And so they become their own worst critic, feeling that they'll just never measure up. And if they translate that into following God, they may feel like, oh, I can never earn his favor. Fortunately, we don't have to, because grace doesn't require anything of us. Can amen. I get an amen? Amen. All right. Some fear being unloved. And so that fear may drive them into giving away too much of themselves in search for love, hoping to buy love from somebody else. And then they find out that they've really damaged themselves even more in that process. They need to understand there's a God who loves us no matter what, unconditionally. Some fear being overlooked or ignored. Some fear, well, just about everything. And they just find a way of looking at the worst case scenario some fear pain, and so they just avoid that by going into other distractions of whatever. Some feel being ordinary. Some fear conflict. As we grow into adulthood, we adapt and we develop coping mechanisms, all of us do, in order to deal with the fears that motivate us. I recognized early on, this is a, not in my notes, so this is for free. I recognized very early on, even in early uh, elementary school, that I had the gift of being humorous. And there were some older, bigger kids. They weren't really bullies, but kinda. <laughs> they were the kind of kids that would like to chase you down on the playground during recess and just knock you over just because they could. I don't think they were gonna beat me to a pulp or anything, but I really didn't enjoy getting knocked down. But I figured out that I had this coping mechanism of making them laugh. And what I learned was I could hide behind my humor to cover my fear and that they valued the entertainment value I provided more than beating me up or knocking me down. And so that became a coping mechanism. And it's amazing to me how sometimes I need to avoid going to that place because I need to be serious and not to encroach on a, sense, a tense, serious moment. Sometimes when I was preaching, I would recognize that I would be afraid, oh boy, this is getting really tense. People are listening and it may be that they're under conviction or something. And I feel uncomfortable with this feeling right now. So I'd crack a joke and it would pull us right out of the moment. So I hope that even though I'm 63 years old, that God is still revealing himself to me and revealing to me how I can keep growing in him so that I can become uh, fully reached in potential and maturity in becoming more Christ-like.
it's a rough way to say it, but you know what I mean. That my, my Enneagram one is coming out and I'm afraid I didn't say that perfectly, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Fear is universal and all of us have motivations. We've all got them. And so many of our childhood fears morph into some form of fear of the unknown. And boy, haven't we had fear of the unknown this last few months. Maybe we fear about our jobs. Maybe we fear about our health, perhaps this year more than just about any other, about our financial situations, about our relationships, about our mental health because of lockdown measures and being isolated. Uh, this year has tested me more in some of these areas than in any other year ever. So I know that there got to be a few of you out there who may have struggled the same way. Hey, you're not alone. <laughs> but fortunately, there's a place for us, all of us, where security abides. That's in the promises of God. And we see some of them foreshadowed even in Micah chapter 5. He's the one who's going to be the source of our peace. That's the source of our security. What a good news for us to know that he is the source of security at Christmas. They will live securely. So how are we going to live securely? Well, by knowing the voice of the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. This is Jesus speaking in the New Testament. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I got to slip this in there again another little puppy illustration, because she's just so cute. And I can't help but want to share that cute face. Doesn't it make you want to reach in there and scratch between the ears? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Poppy is our puppy and Poppy's mama, Callie, has been going to puppy kindergarten with Poppy. That's where you train the adults how not to ruin your dog. <laughs> and Callie's been doing a great job with the training and she's got a clicker so that they associate a treat and the sound of the click, as soon as they do something right, and then doing some hand motions. And a couple of the things that were very important, according to this trainer, and I can understand why now, are the attention and come commands. Attention is where you put that treat when you first start right up to your forehead so that that puppy would look right into your eyes. And that means that if the puppy is starting to get distracted, or if they start to run out into the street or something, and if you can say, attention, they will look right at you and stop what they're doing. That's a life-saving command. Wouldn't it be great if that sheep that I talked about in Scotland, if it started to leap down to that greener grass or that sweeter grass, if the shepherd were to say, attention, and if that sheep would look around and go, <gasps> and stop what it was doing before it got into trouble, man, that would be a good thing to have, wouldn't it? Interestingly enough, and C.S. Lewis, who I quote often, has written a book about pain, the problem of pain. Uh, he talks about the fact that sometimes God whispers to us in our secure times, but he shouts to us in our pain. That was the trouble with the children of Israel. They would get themselves into such pain that that's when God could finally get their attention. So whatever it is that's been getting our attention this last eight months, hey, that can be a good thing. Maybe that's the kind of thing God gets our attention, and sometimes he gets it more often in pain than in times of security or comfort. And so the attention command is a good thing. Whatever it takes for us to get our attention, then we can look to him. Then this next one is even better. It's the come. And this trainer has been training Callie how to get Poppy to come and then reward with so much love and affection to say, good for you. You came, you came, you came. Can you just imagine the good shepherd looking to us 
just about the time that we're about to get ourselves in some real deep problem, potentially not just harmful, but really, really dangerous or deadly even. And then for him to get our attention and to say, come. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you security. You can crawl right into my lap. You'll be safe. I'm the source of your security. Wouldn't that be good? Well, the good shepherd is capable. Micah says that his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. You know what that means? If you're a sheep and you're a wanderer, if you're running away from the one who's been trying to get a hold of you so that he can provide security and rest and comfort and peace, there's not a place you can hide where he can't find you. But that's not a bad thing because that means there, there's not a place you can go where the good shepherd can't rescue you. It's all a matter of our shifting our focus away from getting away from that person that we have seen in the wrong light so that we can understand how loving and saving and gracious and good and eternally satisfying he is. As soon as we catch that, if we know how much he loves us, he's for us, he's not against us, then we can relax and we can allow him to say, come. I found out that a lot of people have been misquoting C.S. Lewis as saying the hound of heaven. He may have alluded to that in some of his writing, but he didn't come up with that phrase. That's actually from a poem. And I read that poem this morning. It's a beautiful poem. It's lengthy. If any of you are in college and you're studying poetry, oh, I commend it to you. You can immerse yourself in this and think about it a lot. It's by Francis Thompson. I am he whom thou seekest. That's the next to the last line in this huge poem about somebody who was a wanderer. And the poem's title is The Hound of Heaven. That's what happens. It's good to know that that hound of heaven will seek us wherever we're going. He's constantly seeking us. Why? Not so he can punish or chastise us. He wants to rescue us. That's what points ahead to the gospel. That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. That's how God showed his love for us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he is eminently capable. So when, though? When is this going to happen? When will we be able to live securely? Then, that's when, then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. When's that going to happen? It's not going to happen in this lifetime, necessarily. This is pointing ahead in the future. Remember, I said there were three different levels. Sometimes they would be pointing ahead from 700 years before Christ to Christ himself. And then when Christ came on the scene, he was ushering in more promises that were going to be fulfilled down the road when he finally comes to reign in his kingdom. And he shall reign forever and ever. There is some really poor theology out there, and some of it comes from the health and wealth gospel, I got to say. Other uh, poor theology about when these things can be ours comes through well-meaning Christians who just quote something as a platitude without realizing, ooh, that's giving the wrong impression. Let me give you a couple of examples. Our family walked through the valley of the shadow of death with a family because uh, the young mother in her early 30s passed away one night, I think she was 31, uh, from an asthma attack. Their daughter was only four years old at the time. Four years old. All of a sudden, here's this dad trying to figure out how to raise a four-year-old girl. 
and some well-meaning, I'm sure, I don't think they intended to do harm. They were pro probably trying the best they, as best they could to help. But they told, once somebody told this four-year-old, God loved your mother so much that he brought her home to be with him. Ah, <laughs> no. What must she think about a God that would do that to a four-year-old? Her image of God, I'm sure, had to have been deeply affected by that statement. A poor theology leads to a poor picture of God and his character. Some health and wealth gospel people would say, in Christ, you will always be safe, no matter what. Well, when will you be safe? I would say that's the important thing. That's what we're looking at here in Micah. In eternity, you will be safe in Christ. All you have to do is read the New Testament and see there were a lot of people who were not safe physically in this world. Many of them were harmed or even killed because of their faith, but they're safe forever. So it's just wrong thinking, it's wrong theology, and it's dangerous for us to say, oh yes, if you'll just pray and get Jesus into your heart, he'll keep you safe forever. What if a drunk driver crosses the center line and hits you head on? You could die. See, we're still in betwixt and between, and this is still a fallen world, and it hasn't been completely restored yet. So we need to avoid bad thinking and bad theology, which is why when we look at this uh, near future, far future, and farthest future theology, it's good for us to see what the layers in that strata are as we point ahead in time. There are many people, and I really feel badly for you if you fall into this category. I wish I could apologize on somebody else's behalf. I can't <laughs> because they have to apologize for themselves. But I am sorry if some of you were hurt as children because of spiritual abuse of some sort. Maybe you saw somebody that lived hypocritically and they said one thing and they said, oh, yes, I'm doing this in God's name, but they weren't doing it in God's character. I'm sorry for you. And I'm sorry if that caused you to think poorly of God or to develop a bad image of who God is. I would like and I would really pray and I just ache for people who are in that category to come to know the true God, to know his true colors, to know his real heart to know the heart of that hound of heaven who would chase you all around the world into the darkest places and even into the darkest times of your life because he desires to rescue you. He wants to be your good shepherd. And oh man, if I could just reach in there through this little pinhole camera and comfort you, I would do so. That's what God wants to do. And that's what he says in scripture, comfort ye, O Israel, and comfort you who are a wandering sheep sometimes in need of a rescuer. There's this far future event. Then, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a New Testament verse. That's after some of these Old Testament promises have come true in the person of Christ, and Paul the apostle recognizes that these things have come true in Christ and that these other promises are being put forward into the far distant future so that eventually God will reign because Christ is coming back. He's coming back to set everything right. There will be justice. We who have a desire for justice, I'm with you. We need justice on the earth, and it will ultimately be meted out because Jesus will be the true judge.
and he will be the true Lord and the King of Kings. Paul is paraphrasing from Isaiah, by the way, when he makes this statement in Philippians. He's pointing ahead to this future. So here's some reason for hope this Christmas. Prophecies that were given 700 years before Christ point to Christ's birth, so specific that even naming the place of his birth, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, Christ's return to reign over his kingdom, which will last forever. Those are good promises, especially for those who are in Christ, because that means that death is no longer an enemy. We don't have to fear it. I've shared this before, and I'm just being totally candid with you, that at the beginning of this pandemic, when they started the lockdown, and we really didn't know what this novel virus meant and how virulent it would be and how deadly it might be, and once we understood that it was taking people, some that were my age or younger, in fact, Joy and I had some good, candid, honest conversations with one another. And we thought, well, we're all going to die sometime. We're not trying to be flippant about it. We're trying to be serious. We are, we're all going to die sometime. And it's amazing how hard some people were trying not to die. If this life is all we've got, I could see why people would work really hard not to die. But for those of us who are in Christ, we don't welcome the journey, but we welcome the destination. And it takes the fear away. And we said, well, if this is it, then I want to go out having preached the most gospel-oriented, Christ-centric messages I've ever preached in my life. Because I want as many people as possible to know the Good Shepherd the way I know him. And if I'm gone in April of 2020, I want people who come behind me to see these sermons, to read my writings, and to say, oh, he really believed this stuff. Because I do. I believe it with a with everything I've got, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he is the Lord of my life, and he can be the Lord of your life if you'll surrender to the good shepherd who wants to rescue those who need rescuing. So who is a shepherd like this? Micah says in chapter 7, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That's the God that Micah was pointing ahead to. That's the true character of God. His anger is righteous, but his mercy is everlasting. You will again have compassion on us, says the prophet. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Man. What a picture. It makes me so grateful, but it can so easily consume us to think back about our guilt because of our sin. There's some things that I've done in my past that I would think, oh, I don't want to have to revisit those. And he reminds us, what sins? I've thrown them into the depths of the ocean. Verse five, it will be our peace. There are near future events and far future events in Micah's prophecies. Christ's arrival signaled more of God's promises yet to come. Those angels that spoke and sang to the shepherds, when they're saying peace upon whom, to those upon whom God's favor rests. 
So these are the three promises that we have to look forward to as we build up this Advent season, looking forward to celebrating Christ's coming. Jesus will be our shepherd. We will live securely, and he will be the source of our peace. Is that good news? Really? If the angel's announcement was good news, how come not everybody finds great joy in it? I think because they have had a misperception of who God is. Some may be just strictly from ignorance. They just don't know. And if somebody doesn't know, I want them to know what a great God he is and how compassionate and merciful he is. But it could be, too, that they've just had some distortions that they're going to have to overcome because of people that misrepresented God to them. I want you to know the real God, though. It is good news for all of us if we change our perspective and see God for who he really is, and we see it most profoundly through Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. That's what shows us the true heart of God. Now, let's say that somebody calls you up and they say, oh, man, I've got such great news. And you say, what, what? So, you know, my daughter? Yeah. The one who had incurable cancer? Yeah, of course I know that. I've been praying for that. Well, they've just discovered a treatment that will cure her. No way, you say. And that person says, yes, in 18 months of continuous treatments, just 18 monthly treatments, she's going to be completely cured. What would your reaction be? Oh, my goodness. You'd be jumping up and down. You'd be doing dancing all over the kitchen. What happens if somebody calls you and they say, man, I've got great news. And you'd say, what's that? Our jobless rate, you know, that's been so low these past five years. I just found out that three huge companies are building regional locations right around our area within driving distance. Within two years, we're going to have 10,000 new jobs right now opening up. That's going to mean so much for the financial security of this region. It's huge. You'd be going, woohoo! It's good news if you are personally affected by it. Folks, Christ died on the cross for you, personally. Something broken has been restored. That's how it's good news. Guess what? We're all broken. All of us are broken. We need to be fixed. We need to be restored. Christ did what was necessary to restore all of us from our lost, dead, in sin condition to being alive in him. He alone did what was necessary to fix the worst thing that could possibly be broken, which is alienation from him. He did what was necessary. And then it's only good news if life will be better because of it. Oh, I can guarantee that. Life with Christ will be better because of it. And here's the most important thing. It's only good news if it's going to take some time, even if it's going to take some time before the good news comes to fruition. There's this near future, far future, farther future events. Sometimes even those of us who have accepted the cure and we're following Christ now, it's like a time release capsule. It's taking time. We're in the transformation process right now. We're going through that process as God is remolding our hearts He's transforming us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. But one day, one day, we'll be perfected before him. 
not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ. That's good news, even if it's going to take time to get to fruition. Now, this news, all the way back, when the angels talked to the shepherds in Luke 2, you would think, what kind of a time was that? It was a time very similar to our own. Economic inequity and uncertainty abounded. Political tensions were incredibly high. There were even politics going on within the, their own Jewish elements back then. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, there were zealots over here. You had new converts. Oh, it was crazy. Paganism, the Greek Hellenistic world, it was just nuts. Racial tension, highly uncertain time back then. International tensions, there were other uh, nations warring against nations, trying to overturn certain nations because of a trade route trade rights. All of this came just about the time when Jesus came on the scene. Things haven't changed. People are still people. All these same conflicts are still abiding today. And yet, at that kind of a time, millions over this next few years leaned into that news. And so many of them accepted the news and came to know it as true. A lot of people leaned, leaned into that news about the leader who would be our shepherd to enable us to live securely and who would be our peace. Those who accepted the good news quit trying to lead and save themselves before the shepherd would provide the promised good news. That's the gospel. It's the bad news, good news gospel. You're lost, you're headed for destruction, but the good news is he wants to be your good shepherd and he will be if you just admit that you need a shepherd. The result is just as it was predicted 700 years before Jesus arrived. The response of those who trust him is that we worship him and we allow him to lead us and feed us. And as we do so, we start to learn more and more daily. I mean, I need his grace daily, but we learn that it's okay to be led and fed by him because he is our good shepherd. Is he yours? Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there's somebody listening to this right now, if they have felt that tug in their own heart, in their spirit, because they realize that they have been a wandering sheep and they need a good shepherd, then I pray that they'll reach out to you and admit, I need Jesus. I want a God who will take care of me, transform me, in the time I have left on this earth, however long that might be, and that I'll be able to rest securely in him, that he will be the source of my true peace for eternity, not just temporarily, but for eternity. I thank you that he's died for me. I admit that I'm a sinner, that I need forgiveness, and I pray that he will forgive that sin and toss those sins into the deepest ocean. Thank you, God, for coming into my heart. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for leading and guiding and protecting and providing security and peace. Amen. If you've just prayed that, and I've got to tell you, best thing you've ever done. Best thing you've ever done. Tell somebody about it. They'll be ecstatic. If it's somebody that's following the Good Shepherd, they will be ecstatic. And they'll want to walk with you as we continually take steps together. All of us broken people who are continually being fixed. <laughs> All of us in need of that good shepherd because none of us can lead ourselves. None of us can fully feed ourselves. We need 
Christ. So come up alongside a bunch of other Christ followers. And it's okay. I know some people say, oh, those people are just a bunch of sheep and they're following this. Well, in this case, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be that kind of sheep. When Christ is our good shepherd, we need to be those kinds of sheep.